Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast with absolutely no idea who Harriet Jones is. I'm Nathan. I'm James. And I'm Max. Well, we're finally back on Earth after a 12-hour jaunt through time and space, and everything seems to be completely normal. The city is gridlocked, Big Ben doesn't work anymore, and the government is run by fat, flatulent aliens. Is it real life, or is it just Aliens of London? Talk to us a little bit about when you first saw this episode. I can. This episode was the first episode I saw. And I, as a kid, as a, so I was seven years old. And I, I'll just I'll, I'll drop that in there. And then, no, but I was seven years old and I, um, I saw the trailer on ABC and it had the spaceship hitting Big Ben moment. Um, that was about the most exciting thing a seven-year-old could possibly see. Or at least I, I, it was like a dream. It was fantastic. And... And I think my parents were worried that it was going to be too scary for me. So they taped episodes and then I sort of didn't. And I just was, I think I was only interested in seeing the carnage of Big Ben at that point. I wasn't really interested in anything else. So then I finally sat down and watched the episode and it, I, it hooked me from, from the moment, from that scene where that Rose is on the rooftop and she's talking about like the things I've seen and no, no one's seen them and then the lorry sound and the spaceship flies over and I think my dad was saying that he saw in that moment he thought well he's not interested in cricket or football but at least he's got Doctor Who <laughs> and that was it and that I was hook line and sinker that was me yeah and so that was the first Doctor Who you'd ever seen yeah that, yeah pretty well I think I'd seen the classic reruns before the new series the, came the back early 2000s yeah like 2003 because I have a vague memory of Sylvester McCoy crouching in a quarry but I don't know. That's sort of a, that's <laughs> that's a vague. Maybe it was could maybe, be anything. Could be anything. Uh, but no. But that was in earnest. That was the first time. That and time of the Rani. Well, it could have been, but it could have been any of those Alan Waring ones on location. Yeah, yeah. It, but effectively, yes. And and then it became like sort of a playground. Like in my imagination, every kid was watching Doctor Who and pretending to be Doctor Who at lunchtime. From that point on, probably wasn't the case. But from that point on, all of our Year one class or whatever, we're reenacting Doctor Who all week. That's such a great thing to hear because I think there is very definitely a sort of conscious effort from RTD to make Doctor Who something that gets reenacted in the playground. Yeah. When I when I watched it again, the sort of zip in the forehead moment, I realised is just perfectly distilled kind of playground fodder. I remember hearing him interviewed where he talks about how he he loved the idea of like slightly chubbier children being able to just sort of menacingly like start to unzip their foreheads and everyone would scream and run away. I think um, RTD probably does have a little bit of an issue with ways um, and not always in a good way, but um, it might be something that we get back to. But I think, you know, in the ones that we've done already this year, I think things like the bin, I don't know if we said that in the Rose episode, but I like to imagine kids, you know, dodging bins as they walk down the street just so that they don't suffer Mickey's fate Um, and giving the aliens catchphrases like pity the gelf and stuff like that. I mean, it was just perfect for the playground. Or even just the the way the doctor's given a normal key. Yeah. Yeah. uh, In this early 70s, they had that 
gorgeous spade design that Pertwee and Baker had, which they brought back in the TV movie. But giving giving the Doctor you know, a household key yeah. for the TARDIS means that any key can be a TARDIS key. Any door can be an, an opening to to adventure. Yeah. You know, like he's he's very evidently going, this is a family show. I want kids to, you know, have the same experience I had growing up watching this where, you know, the whole world was this adventure. Yeah, I think that's it. I think I've said before he kind of enchants the world, you know, like he he imbues it with, with things so that a kid looking out the window uh, as they drive along in London and seeing Big Ben thinks about the ship crashing into it or even sort of seeing a London bus or driving down Westminster Bridge or or the London Eye, you know, like all of those things. Or a, or a Yeti on the loo <laughs> tooting yeah, back. Yes. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> tooting back's not a real place, James. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, so we're talking about family and, of course, the episode opens, the cold open doesn't do what a Doctor Who story normally does, which is show you the monsters or show you the threat. The The role of a cold open is to tell you what the episode's about. And the cold open is entirely about Rose's family. So the Doctor brings Rose back. She thinks she's been gone for 12 hours, but the Doctor's made a mistake. And it's the kind of hilarious mistake that we're used to the Doctor making. But we suddenly see that it has this massive impact on Rose's family. Because she actually has a real life. Yeah. <laughs> she's and a real person. And it's even with the, the – I think the Doctor's going up to that missing poster. Yeah. And, it, and even, like, Murray Gold's music is kind of just, like, re- really sort of pleasantly – and then it just sort of goes sour and there's like this really like huge cheesy stick that just starts to and as his sort of face drops in horror it's fantastic it's, i think it's such a good as the music tells you how to it feel. tells you exactly how to feel <laughs> That's good. That's yeah good. i like um i like jackie's reaction because she has been such a sort of hilarious oblivious comedy character and just the look on her face like she's seen a ghost and she drops the thing and it is all intercut with the discovery of the missing poster and I think Rose looks across a table and there's heaps of missing posters yeah. and it's clear that Jackie's entire year has been about Rose being missing yeah and I think I was huh I was reading Sadfa's entry on this and she talks about the idea that there is concurrently with Doctor Who a kind of EastEnders style soap going on and that the two of them are crashing into each other and every three weeks we come back to Rose's family in season one and there are clearly episodes of the soap going on <laughs> while we've been enjoying The End of the World and The Unquiet Dead. Like, yeah, you get Mickey and Jackie's life is just is happening while we're away like even in mickey's terrible apartment you know like that yeah. sort of like with every like there's the stop sign on the wall but there's all his ufo books and you get the sense he's just been like it's just built into the world of the show that oh you know sort of what he's been and i love the detail that like jackie just assumed that he'd murdered him it's just sort of simmering away underneath it but it's sort of it's it's a really it's a kind of terrifyingly dark thing that's just sort of thrown by the wayside. Yeah. yeah. there's It's played for laughs, in yeah. fact, when um, Rose asks him later if he's been with anyone in the last 12 months and he says, no, but mostly because everyone thinks I murdered you. And, you know, the idea of a black man being called in by the police for the murder of a white woman, like the show is kind of too light to deal with that really properly but i do think there is a pretty good bit 
in the middle where uh, the Doctor and Rose step out of the TARDIS with Mickey and there's a helicopter and they're going to be escorted to number 10. And the moment that Mickey sees these soldiers, he knows that he has to run, you know, like he doesn't yeah. have the kind of charmed life that the Doctor and Rose well, exactly. have. Exactly. Like, I mean, and that's really subtle. And, and like, on first viewing, when you're much younger, you don't realise the coding there. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I mean, I was 24 when I first saw this story, <laughs> and I don't. I didn't even get that coding. Um, I like what you say about it being an EastEnders-style soap going on in the background. I much prefer this to the last time Doctor Who did an EastEnders-style soap. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in the show. <laughs> what it reminds me of, and I think I've said this before, is that it's like the Pertwee era's sort of small, semi-regular cast. And particularly after kind of season eight, they do become sort of very semi-regular. But they're always there and we go back to them and it's nice to see them again and they're there for season finales and stuff like that. But they're sort of a ridiculous TV army and having them instead being a ridiculous TV sort of soap opera family, particularly at a time where Doctor Who doesn't know if it's going to be popular, it doesn't know whether it's got an audience. And I think pitching it at just normal people and having normal TV depictions of normal people. I mean, I don't think Jackie's a normal person, but yeah. she's a TV mum. Yeah. And the soap opera is so ingrained in British culture by this point. Yeah, yeah, much yeah. more so than for us, I think. Yeah, and much more so than it – I mean, soaps were very popular back in, in the 60s and 70s as well, but not in the same way they are in modern Britain now. I mean – I think both EastEnders and um, Coronation Street are some of the highest rated programs on television. Like, soap is still most British drama. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, soap and science fiction have a lot in common, I think. And there's a scene in Queer as Folk. And I think, again, I probably have to credit Dr. Sandifer for this again. <laughs> but there's a scene in Queer as Folk where Vince goes to a straight pub with people from work and he meets a girl and they bond over Coronation Street and talk about how uh, Doctor Who was put up against Corrie in the 80s and ended up suffering in the ratings. And most people would have assumed that the audiences for the two shows were quite different, but of course they weren't. And Soap creates a involved world where there are a lot of things to know about a lot of different characters and science fiction does exactly that and particularly in the 80s as well doctor who's completely doing that mm. so i think they're a natural fit but i do think it was met with a bit of hostility from doctor who fans yeah and i'd be interested to see with season 11 coming up whether that's the same approach that is used because I think as an exercise in in grounding the show and making it much more open to families and to to anyone. Yeah, like it's it's proved an incredibly worthwhile tactic. Like since the seventies, you know, for Doctor. So I'm interested to see whether that's an approach that Chris Chibnall takes as well. Because it in a way it is sort of I think coming from the same place and that they want this show to appeal to the most amount of people possible. Yeah. 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 I think just having a regular cast of two is problematic, even just from a TV production point of view. It looks, I mean, and this is probably certainly fan rumour, but it looks like ser Series 11 is probably heading down more of a, like, you know, police procedural 
crime drama. And you know, probably season 11 will all have been screened by the time <laughs> they managed to get this Possibly, out. yes. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be out in October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> yes, it came out in October. <laughs> <laughs> So we take a little bit of a time away from the Tyler family to just go upstairs and have a breather while mum's downstairs having a little bit of a panic. And so the doctor and Rose get to have this conversation where they talk about, you know, kind of the story so far. That's a great scene, but there there are bits of it that don't land, in my opinion, especially coming from a, a gay writer. writer. Um, chucking in, you know, and look, we all grew up with this, you know, with, with the word gay being an insult in the playground. And the, the fact that Russell chucks in, oh, you're so gay. Um, and what is it? It's in response to the doctor saying that it hurt when Jackie hit him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, look, I mean, yeah, yes. Um, but we should be expecting better from a gay writer. If you were writing it now, I don't think you would do no. it. You know, ob- obviously. And, but I think... Yeah, it's in- it's interesting. It is an interesting choice. He, yeah. Like he said in defense of that scene at the time, you know, I wanted to put that in there because I am a gay writer and I wanted to make people stop and think and go, oh, if a gay writer is writing this. Is it okay? Is it okay? It's, or, it's not the first use of the word gay because mm, it gets used in Rose. Mm, Remember, you know, that won't work. He's gay and she's an alien. Yeah, well, that, but that's, that's a different sort of thing. I mean, this, that's not being used as an insult. And um, the sort of general ask with Slovene talks about his previous host having a, a wife, a mistress and, and a, a young farmer. farmer. Yeah. <laughs> again, again, that's normalising. Yeah, yeah. That's normalising being being gay or at least... Um, sort of representing it in yeah, some way. Yeah, representing it in some way. Um Look, yes, you can read it that way. Is that um, Russell coming up with a a reason for using something which he he possibly should have questioned? Yeah. Or, I mean, I don't have a problem with that scene if the doctor calls her out on it. Or somebody I, I just think it's too it's complex and distracting, and that's a scene where the focus is on that incredible Rose Tyler smugness about knowing something that no one in the whole world knows, and then suddenly getting I, the rug pulled out from under her. Yeah, and then I think the lorry sound as the spaceship comes over is just an incredible masterstroke because you hear it before you see it. Yeah, and so you're not quite sure what's happening, and then just this massive spaceship. Oh, like I just think. As a, as a sort of trailer moment and as a scene, I think it's fantastic. So Doctor Who's had alien invasions before, but I think that this is vastly different from anyone that we've ever seen in that it's the most public alien invasion ever. Well, we're talking about the Saigon Gambit with the Loch Ness Monster or the Yetis in the underground. <laughs> yeah, I guess they have been public in the past, haven't they? We've evacuated London twice. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the invasion of the dinosaur. <laughs> I think what makes it feel particularly new, obviously, is looking at it through the prism of the media. The scene where the flicking through the channels and the Doctor's just in this sort of... It's just forced to be in this... Inc- like, everyone's just bickering about... You know, like, I think Jackie's talking about, like, an old relationship or, or, or like, yeah. something like... He characterises it as um, talking about where you can get cheap top-up cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I love... But then, like, seeing the spaceship in Blue Peter and then seeing, obviously, like, the US media, like, as yeah. as the episodes go on, as it becomes sort of a more, a more sort of global 
UN getting drawn into it. And it, and it becomes such a staple of the Russell T. Davis era that yeah. e- even the US newsreader has a name and has a, yeah. has a character. And Trinity Wells. Yeah. Wells. And I remember in The Writer's Tale, he talks about um, wanting to bring her in at a sort of fantastic cameo appearance in The Stolen Earth where she has to be all badass and kind of... <laughs> I think, but I just... I love that there's this extended world and it's pretty quickly drawn and it's yeah. sort of quite surface. But I like having actual BBC anchors. Yeah, like Andrew Marr. Andrew Marr talking about... And he's fantastic. Yeah. And like, he's just su- such a natural kind of... And he's just in it a lot and he's giving these sort of little sarcastic snipes throughout the entire yeah. episode. He just takes it up slightly one level sort of bigger than reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and it's and I love and I just think seeing an alien invasion through contemporary twenty four hour news, yeah, is is something that feels incredibly fresh for the program. And if you're th- thinking about like sort of the Capaldi era, they, they kind of jettison it because it became such a, a sort of staple and a trope <laughs> of, of the of that of the Russell T Davis era. But I think it's it feels fantastically fresh in these two episodes. I think they, they basically jettison it from. Yeah, from, from, from it's the eleventh hour it's onwards. The, it's practically. in the power of it's in the power of three a little bit. Yeah, but that feels more like a a bit of a callback when they bring Brian Cox on. And yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, or that sort of episode eleven sort of montage of various people that happens in the Russell T Davies thing as well. It is something that he did in the Second Coming. Uh, like he partly tells that story through media as well, and in fact, this is very similar. I think in some ways to the Second Coming, which is absolutely yes. definitely worth watching. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's absolutely, yeah. definitely him going, I'm trying to make Doctor Who, but I can't do it. <laughs> Not yet. So, <laughs> so, how can I tell a story kind of a bit like Doctor Who? Ah, oh, I know, I'll bring back Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he actually uses it sort of quite deftly to push the story along as well. Mm. I mean, part of the story is that the aliens have done something huge and public and dramatic to create an impact, but then he actually moves the story from The Doctor and Rose, where it stays for quite a lot of that first episode, uh, into the hospital, and then we move away from them and have scenes without them for the first time. Mm. Of course, we uh, get the first uh, introduction of Toshiko Sato. Yeah, so she's credited as Dr. Sato, Mm. and uh, we discover, I think, in Torchwood Series 2... That mm. uh, is that episode eleven of series two? I think. Oh, it could be. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Owen sorry. Owen was hung over. He was supposed to do it because he's actually a doctor, and so she was just there pretending to be a doctor, and that's how she sort of comes to be. There. Just a really rough day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no sign that she's tortured, and obviously they didn't think of that until later, and it was just a sort of cute retcon. Those are quite good scenes, I think. Yeah, I love the whole. Again, I think maybe because it's it's quite fresh in my head from when I saw it, and I was devastated by the shooting of the mm. pig man. Like I, that was, I mean, I'm pretty easy tears, but but that I was I was sort of very, um, and I think I I don't know. I, I it seems like one of Russell T Davis's where where he can be quite brutal in just killing off this poor little. It's sort of quite a devastating scene, and it seems, and it's quite, it's a it's a bit of a tonal shift certainly from the episode that that has been set up before that point it's very clever because it goes from being kind of horror 
with the thing banging inside the sort of mortuary drawer. And then it goes to comedy when the pig sort of sticks its head around the corner. It's clearly a pig. It makes a pig noise and then it runs off in this sort of comedy way and then suddenly it's shot dead. And I think it's Eccleston who sells that with the it was scared line. He yeah. says it twice and he really feels it. Like, mm. And I think you're right identifying Russell as brutal. I mean, he does have this light tea time tone, but there's a lot of kind of yeah. horrible nastiness. Even, even, I'm skipping ahead slightly, but even, even when all the experts are killed in the cliffhanger and there's just a room full of mm. dead scientists, like it, it feels, I mean, it, I mean, Doctor Who does that a fair bit, but it, I think maybe even coming from the Moffat era where I think you just see less of that sort of willingness to just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kill yeah. an entire room of people <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then just sort of like flippantly kind of move on. But yeah. I mean, it, it is, he's, He's pretty good at making it sort of wash over your head when you're while you're watching, but it's yeah. sort of taking a step back and going, there's some incredible sort of, I mean, Doctor Who is incredible at deftly navigating massive tonal shifts from comedy to yeah. what otherwise would be horrific. horrific yeah. yeah. No, I think there's a real kind of dark cynicism behind Russell's really sunny exterior. You know, that sort of public persona he has all the way through the publicity of his time all of the um dvd commentaries and stuff everything's marvelous and everything's just lovely it's it's just so jovial but like under the surface yeah i could be really horrible i think that episode i think it's episode six of cucumber is the most upsetting piece of television i've ever seen yeah don't Can we talk about the Slovene? Uh, maybe the most controversial part of the episode? The Slikine. The Slikine, as Slikine. Jackie calls them. <laughs> the Slikine. <laughs> I love... Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves because it is in the next episode. But do, both, do you mean the most controversial part of the episode because of the... F- Starting or yeah. because of or because of the terrible cliffhanger that goes on for 25 minutes. Well, we'll talk about the cliffhanger, um, but let's talk about the Savine because it is kind of, this one is in fan memory as the one with the farting aliens. And I know that there's a lot of people who are really angry about that. And I think that Russell is definitely kind of rubbing it in our faces like it's very deliberate i think yeah so i mean yes you say that but it's like there are four episodes with gassy aliens this season we've had the we've had the gelf yes yeah and then these two and then boomtown is there another one no i think that's it but i mean (laughs) bob holmes has that entire planet living off kroll's farts joke (laughs) in the power of kroll or or the (laughs) terceron by moffat but i think this is the first time it's been on screen in doctor who and i think we've seen from say the last jedi backlash that People who are proprietorial over their science fiction franchises want them to be super, super serious. And it's not just the farting. It is that kind of childish glee that uh, the Slovene, you know, exhibit. I think I loved them when I was a kid. Yeah. And then when I was 11 or 12, I sort of thought, you know, oh, it, Doctor Who should be serious. And, yeah. And, and that's ridiculous and mm. stupid. It's a very teenage. Very teenage <laughs> thing. And I think then I've come back around to... I think they're perfect for the story that they've been put in. Yeah. Because I think it's the the idea that you would put what is effectively sort of a bit of a an urban kind of thriller, you know, retur- returning to Earth and telling this, uh, the, like, the longest story so far in the season about this sort of strange alien arrival. The, the fact that you would put then... 
silly green monsters that that fart when they're putting in you know on their human bodies i think is fantastic and it's just a it's a way of not appearing to take the whole thing too seriously and i think yeah I think, too, the conception of the aliens where they actually sort of tear people's skin off and yeah. sort of live in the skin is actually really kind of horrible. And when you get Harriet Jones cowering in the cupboard watching it happen and sort of reacting like it's a real horrible, scary Sell- thing. Selling the fact that this is horrific what's happening. Yeah, but the- then having Annette and Joseph being just sort of truly hilarious. Fantastic. The, the juxtaposition. Yeah. It's just- it's- I had a neighbour. Our next door neighbour was the spitting image of Annette. <laughs> and so the combination of that and, and having her like evil, yeah, it's that sort of evil glee that she has. And yeah. she, she just steals the entire. So you can totally understand why. I mean, I don't, was it reflective of her performance why they came back to her character? I or? think so. Like, I think they bring her back for Boomtown. I think something falls through or something. Like, it's a bit of a late thing. I'm not entirely sure of the production history, but I think they bring her back on the strength of that performance. Of performance. And then, of course, they cast her in Wizards versus Aliens yes, as well yeah. as a result of it too. friend of the podcast, Peter Griffiths, says that uh, – Annette tells a story about being kind of stared at by a small child on the tube one time and her sort of turning around and going to zip her forehead open (laughs) at the child. (laughs) And, like, I can just totally imagine that. She's really, really wonderful. But I think all of them are really sort of terrific and funny. And, um, look, I'm not sure that all of the farts land quite as well as they might. Uh, And I think we can talk more about that next week when Mm. we talk about Keith Boke's direction but i have absolutely no objection to it and i really like i mean you know russell makes the doctor say would you mind not farting while i'm saving the world you know and puts it i think in the next time trailer for the previous episode like he totally leans into it so it is a very definite attempt i think to alienate the show from sort of 80s-style science fiction fandom and to say this is for kids and families as well. This is going to be funny. And it's not like this story is without any serious intent. It's got serious things to say, but it has a lightness and a comedy and a refusal to take itself too seriously, I think. So who do we think was the Prime Minister in the cupboard? Well, I mean, it was definitely actually supposed to be Tony Blair. I actually like the – there's a little bit of banter when they're in the car on the way to number 10 because on the posters it says that Rose disappears on the 6th of March 2005, 2005. No one says 2005. I don't know. (laughs) I'm quite old. Um, And so this story is set nearly 12 months into the future – uh, by time of broadcast. And since 2003, um, Brown and Blair had been clearly having conflict over whether Blair should step down and whether Brown would take over. So, Rose Rose doesn't know who the Prime Minister is. Well, there's, there's that, but if it had been Brown... He, they could have actually just replaced the Prime Minister. With a Celine. No, they actually did employ a Tony Blair lookalike to play 
the dead prime minister <laughs> on the floor. But when he turned out not to look very alike to um to Tony Blair, they decided to not really show his face. I like the fact that he just falls out of a cupboard and yeah. then it's sort of it's completely humiliating. They've, <laughs> they've just shoved him in a cupboard. I think it will become very clear next episode why the hostility to Tony Blair. Um, it gives them a little bit of wiggle room to say, no, it's actually a fictional prime minister. But on the staircase in number 10 where they have the photos of all the prime ministers, the very last one there is John Major. There's no photo after that. Um, so let's say it's Tony Blair and we'll talk about why next week. Well, there's also that line from Harriet Jones where she she says, I'm hardly one of the babes. Yeah. Um, and after Labor won the landslide election in 1987, there were, I think, 100, 101 new, fe- well, not necessarily new, but elected female Labor MPs right. in Parliament. It's one of the highest representations of, of women in British Parliament ever, um, still to this day, I believe. And in Parliament that year, there were 120 women elected. So, like, there was... In the media, in typical sort of misogynist fashion at the time, they were dubbed Blair's babes. Right. right. Because, you know, well, like, let's trivialise yes. the fact <laughs> that, you know, instead of, instead of going, wow, this is amazing, we've got the highest representation of women ever in, in British Parliament, let's just trivialise yeah, 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 right. them as babes, yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay, so that is Blair. Then, yeah, no, that's, they, and that was deliberate foregrounding of the fact that it was supposed to be Blair, but they cut everything else out when it turned out the guy that they'd hired as a lookalike <laughs> wasn't that good a lookalike. <laughs> Which is sort of failing at the first post if you're, if you're billing yourself as a Blair. Yeah, 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 you had one job. You, <laughs> you lost your shot to be <laughs> the murdered Tony Blair in <laughs> Doctor Who. So what do you guys think about the Doctor and Rose in this story? Like, I was reading Sandifer's thing as well. <laughs> Just jumped on that bandwagon. And it was interesting how, how it was saying, because well, the first three episodes are clearly story of the week and sort of dealing with this is what Doctor Who is. Yeah. But this is sort of the first occasion where the Doctor and Rose sort of, particularly Rose's character, starts to impose itself on the whole show rather than, rather than a sort of textbook, this is Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that the overall arc thing, because there is a big story about what Rose is doing and her relationship with her family, which really becomes mm. clear, I think, in the very final scene yeah. of uh, next episode. But I think that there is something about the relationship between them that is already kind of slightly problematic, and that yeah. is how much they enjoy what's going on around them. And it's really sweet seeing them both in the car and both being super mm. excited about going to number 10. But I think that the show as early as this is starting to kind of look askance at that. And it, it sort of reaches its apotheosis in series two yep. with Rose and the 10th Doctor and and the fall at the end of series two and her ending up in another universe because of their hubris, basically. Yeah. Um, as a character arc, I actually quite like that. Yeah. The, the fact that the show is going... You know, there are costs to the way you approach the world. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you're enjoying the fact that you could die any minute and the thrill and the adrenaline of that. And 
But there are costs. There, there's a price you have to pay if you keep approaching the world in that way. And they return to that in season nine with Clara's arc quite deliberately and, and probably a bit more sort of explicitly. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, I think, because both, both of those characters have the longest kind of – I suppose Amy does as well, but but they have the longest sort of um, one-on-one uh, relationship with the Doctor that we see in this. And, the, and I think it's sort of treated as an almost inevitable if you stay with the Doctor too long, this the, – Their lives sort of are forever altered yeah, by get interacting kind of, with him. And, and unless you sort of get out like Martha does or or – or tragic circumstance before you like Donna. It's almost like a corruption or, or something. It's just this sort of altering of these adventures and, and this danger will definitely change. You could backwards construct uh, that onto Sarah Jane Smith as yeah. well. I mean, not that it's a deliberate thing in the classic series, but well, School Reunion does that as yeah. well. But, but when you were talking about this in the classic series of Flat 3 entirety, where you were talking about how after her first couple of stories, she's not really a real person anymore. And she she becomes corrupted by by travelling with the Doctor. Uh, I think it'll come up later on next series where Jackie suggests that at some point Rose won't even be human anymore if she keeps travelling with the Doctor. She'll be on some moon somewhere and she'll have forgotten who everyone is is and all of that i think is yet to come but i think here that feeling manifests itself most of all in the kind of cavalier way that the doctor wrecks jackie and mickey's life and you know he runs into the room at the end of the cold open and just goes i'm sorry you know you've been gone 12 months sorry and then gives that smile Smile. that sort of embarrassed smile and then we just cut back to this sort of, you know, weeping Jackie, like all of these terrible things have happened. And fortunately he does pay for it. I mean, she does smack him in the face. It would have been perfect if that smack had come at the, at the end of the cold open. <laughs> or at the beginning. <laughs> at the beginning of the credits it would have been perfect. And that stuff is great as well. They give Chris things to do that the Doctor's never done before, which is, you know, push a toddler off his lap while he's trying to watch television. Um, Even when he sort of has to stand, and they, because the police officer comes around at the the end of the cold open, and he sort of has to sort of sheepishly sheepishly stand there, sort of, you know, being questioned. Companion, is this a sexual? Well, even that, that's never a question that gets asked of the classic series at all, even when the but, Doctor and Lala are running hand in hand through Paris. But, 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 but I mean, Companion was always a, quite an innocent yeah. thing. Was, you know, what was that line about, isn't a Companion uh, something that Dowager aunts have? <laughs> What's that from? I can't I remember. Um, Companion has only really got that meaning between the classic series and the new series. Mm. Companion has, has gained this sexual innuendo. Which is interesting, particularly because the news series has dropped the word companion from the entire format of the series. When they had their big sort of worldwide launch, yeah. they don't call them companions, they're the Doctor's friends. Yeah. Mm. And every, every reference to companion mm. seems to sort of be kind of pushed away. Um, it's that weird fanish construct where you get yeah. to argue about whether Katarina is a companion yeah, or yeah, not, yeah. and it's Just sort of nonsense. <laughs> like, what is that? Um, I was reading a feminist critique of Doctor Who recently, um, which was you know, interesting, but they they counted Katarina's companion but not Sarah Kingdom, which I was like... Is Brett Vine a companion? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, how can you count someone who's there for, like... 
an episode, really, yeah. um, to someone who's throughout an entire story. Well, I mean, anyway, the whole thing is a sort of silly idea and the word companion is a sort of stupid word and kind of the doctor gets slapped down for using it. But he is also kind of sexualized in a way that he hasn't really been much before. I mean, we had Pat Troughton flirting with various mm. female guest stars, but... Well, from the moment Jackie meets him, he's sexualized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when right. he's walking away from the power estate to his TARDIS, someone calls out from the balcony and come back to the party handsome, <laughs> too, which I really like. And he's sort of just... And he, you can tell that he's heard it and registered it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're kind of nearing the end of our discussion and it's not a real Doctor Who series unless there are some cliffhangers. So this is our first cliffhanger of the new series and it's one of three cliffhangers. We're not getting a cliffhanger every 25 minutes anymore. Um, how do we think this one lands? I think it's definitely the worst one. <laughs> it's probably the worst cliffhanger of the entire new series. I think so. Possibly the entire series altogether. Why do you uh, say that? <laughs> It's almost as if they'd forgotten. I mean, well, they, you know, it's these the new new people making this show, so they haven't forgotten. But it's almost as if the show doesn't know how to do a cliffhanger. Well, okay, they work it out by the next time, but it's so bloody prolonged. <laughs> um, it's like how many peril monkeys can you have? You know, three different cliffhangers, intercutting backwards and forwards constantly. It could have worked if there were two. Um, three is just overkill. And it's just so slow. It's like, oh, they're undoing their zips. They're undoing their zips. They're undoing their zips. They're undoing their zips. <laughs> like, when is somebody going to die, please? Um, and then, straight after the cliffhanger, we get the next time trailer. And it's just, yeah. I mean, you can tell that they're, you know, they, it's they're new. just it's a rough. new show. I, they're like, you know, it's the first recording block, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that scene with the Doctor and the experts doesn't really land, I think, no. at all. It feels orchestrated by a need to get to the cliffhanger rather than a sense of... I mean, I know that there's the sense of, oh, we're getting experts, and it is it is sort of part of the Slovene's plan to get rid of get yeah. rid of these people in this room. Um, which, so I get that, but I just feel like it, it sort of comes... I don't know. It comes out of the blue a little bit. It's almost like RTD went... Well, they're all here. How am I going to kill them? <laughs> oh, security passes. Yeah, yeah. I think what's odd about it too is Chris's demeanour in that scene is very strange. I think he, yeah, I, I think when he's talked about not landing the comedy right, I always think of that scene where it's it's a bit. I think well, maybe because it's the first recording block. Yeah, that he handles the comedy with sort of quite heavily. Yeah, which I, I think he's talked about in the part. Yeah, he's, well. he's not natural to yeah. him. Though, though when he works it out, when he actually gets the rhythm of it, he's quite charming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also yeah, I th think those experts are kind of scenery as well. Yeah. Like oh, none yeah. of them get oh, a line, no. yeah. you know. But yeah. even Unit, who, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who are so integral to certain parts of the classic series and are mythical. And then just and they're just thrown away, <laughs> and, and <laughs> that's that's a, that's a very deliberate thing yeah. on Russell's part as well. Going, we're not doing this. Is what anymore. you think Doctor Who is? <laughs> no. Nah. Um, it's interesting what you say about um, Chris. You know, looking uncomfortable at that scene. I think I like to think that's the scene at which he realised he wanted to leave, because uh, <laughs> um, that 
I mean, ostensibly the first recording block is where he kind of went, oh, this thing is a mess. I don't like what's going on. I don't like how they're treating their actors. Like, he read that as a toxic work environment, apparently. Yeah. Um, From what he said since, when, you know, it was more a case of they were clueless. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. They were overrunning. They were over budget, apparently. Um, And, yeah, it's it's accident more than design, I think. Yeah. But I kind of think if they've got, like, three cliffhangers, they really need to make them each land. And so there's a very clear desire, I think, to make this enormous. And so having the same cliffhanger at sort of three plot strands and building it up, I think you're right, it takes too long. But I do think it strikes uh, upon something that is genius, which is having Jackie in peril. I love that. And I, lo- <laughs> I love it's the same cower that she does with the Autons. Like, no, it's, it's just fantastic. It's like, and it's the same. I think she's, of all the three, I think the one with, in Jackie's apartment is the most, it, there's something fantastic about seeing the Slitheen in just, in a, in a yeah. normal apartment. Yeah. I mean, it is fun seeing them in Downing Street, but but having just a, mo- like a huge, like it, a really like monster monster in a way that the, the new series hasn't done before. Like, you know, like it's men in massive suits, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. leering over. And, and it's kind of just, I like that part of it. And I think you're right. Like, I think, it takes like work to get those to converge at the right time with three separate, very yeah. similar, you know. Well, it, it didn't really work. <laughs> no, no, um, but, but the, the effort, I, I sort of, I can see where it's the, the intention in creating this sort of all of the regulars in peril. If they're all in peril, how can they possibly get out of it? Yeah, you know? but they could have done that in, in ways which, uh, you know, would be used later in the series, you know, doing split screen or just much faster intercutting. Yeah, I don't think they've yeah. quite developed that yet. And yeah. it, the pace is a problem yeah. and it takes up quite a bit of the episode. Well, it's, it's funny because I was thinking, like, then I was thinking about Russell's cliffhanger in Bad Wolf, uh, which is a totally different. I mean, that's yeah. t- clearly a different approach to it that just works, I think, incomparably well. Like, yeah. it's just, it's funny because I was trying to think of incidences where they sort of return to that style of cliffhanger where it cuts between everyone in peril. But I, I kind of was, no. was struggling to, unless they're all, I mean, it's sort of happened, the Sideman one, but they're all together. It's sort of a big set piece. Yeah. But I think they don't really go near it for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I think they, they kind of went, oh, well, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice policeman hacking down our front door and James is rummaging around in the pantry for a jar of pickled gherkins, so it looks like that's all we have time for this week. Do come back next week for World War Three. In the meantime, you can find us at flightthroughentirety.com, Flight Through Entirety on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at FTE Podcast on Twitter. Max, where can people find you online? You can find me at, at Max underscore Gelbart on Twitter. It's it's pretty barren there, but <laughs> if you wish. Excellent. And that'll be in the show notes. Uh, meanwhile, over on Bondfinger, you can find a very sober and well-informed series of commentaries on nearly all of the James Bond films. That's uh, Bondfinger.com, Bondfinger on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at Bondfingercast on Twitter. Until next time, may your country's head of government not be replaced by a giant farting alien baby, unless, of course, that's happened already. Thank you very much for listening, and good night. Good night. Good night.
That was Flight for Entirety, starring Nathan Bottomley, Max Shelbart, and James Selwood. Theme arrangement by Cameron Lamb, strings performance by Jane Orberg. This episode, Men in Massive Suits, was recorded on the 8th of July 2018 and released on the 16th of September. If you want to know more about the Slovenes' plans to take over the Earth, why not check out next week's episode of Flight Through Entirety or consult the Wikipedia article on neoliberalism. Seeing a London bus or driving down Westminster Bridge or or the London Eye, you know, like all of those things. Or a, or a Yeti on the loo. <laughs> <Tooting Beck. laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> Tootingbeck's not a real place, Brett. Uh, what's your oh! Name <laughs> Let me try the No, again. well, well, no, no, I'll go and bring him. He can come and uh, replace me now. Uh, me I know I'm a second-class substitute. <laughs> um, Freudian slip. There, there's your exit. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try that again. Tooting... <laughs>